Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. All characters during the show, such as Donatella Iglesias, Jimmy Coconuts, and Tyler Jerry are copywritten and are satirical. Any similarity to any persons living or dead is completely coincidental. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Science! Science! Yes. I know the human being and science can just peacefully. Welcome to Petri Dish. This is Nathan. I'm Sean. And this is our first episode of a multi-part series on pandemics, past, present, future, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Or can science defeat pandemics forever? This is a nice and long title. I like that. Well, we haven't actually even said the thing that we're talking about today, have we? Right. Today is tuberculosis. Today is tuberculosis. And the thing about pandemics, this series, is that they're probably not going to be released consecutively. They're just going to be, every once in a while, we're going to put out a pandemic episode, and it's part of this sort of like mega Why not? Series. What? Why not? Because we have so much other stuff going on. We've got skin episodes coming up. Okay, guys, so this is a, a multi-part series on various pandemics in history, and our first one is on tuberculosis. After that, we're going to go through all sorts of other pandemics and kind of do a slight comparative analysis. I think the prompting for this series, for me at least, was beyond the fact that certain diseases are very interesting and there's a lot to talk about. You know, you look at the mortality rate for coronavirus and it's like, this is a punk bitch disease. Let's talk about the cool ones that used to kill everybody. Of which a great example is tuberculosis. Yes. Tuberculosis is kind of an interesting case. Um, so, um, Although, quick caveat. Don't take what I just said too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Coronavirus is more than a mouth flu. Yeah. Yeah. If you listen to our mini episodes on coronavirus, you'll get a kind of closer look at that. So I wanted to start out with a modern context on tuberculosis. And then after a modern context, we'll talk a little bit about the historical relevance of tuberculosis. And then we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the vaccination for tuberculosis, right? Right. Which does exist, but we have things to say. So uh, (laughs) let's get into it. Okay, Sean, tell me about the modern context of tuberculosis. Okay, so for me, when I hear about tuberculosis, I kind of think about the 1800s or something. Right. right. The 1700s, 1800s. Tuberculosis doesn't exist anymore. So that's the thing, is that in the U.S., tuberculosis is very rare, and so... A lot of people do not even get vaccinated for tuberculosis. Why is it so rare? It's been mostly eradicated. Sweet. Um, in a lot of cases, Swing. tuberculosis is something that can be spread in unclean conditions. So one of the things about kind of the cleaning of the modern world. Wait, super step back. Yeah. Is it a bacterial infection or, or virus? Sure. Tuberculosis is a bacteria. All right, cool. It's a mycobacterium. So it's um, a really small one. It is. Oh, yes. fuck. <laughs> Even though it's a mycobacterium, oh. not, not micro, <laughs> but it, it actually is a very small You made bacteria. me look like an asshole. <laughs> well, so the thing is, it's a bacteria that likes to live inside our cells. Oh, that's, that's so fucking smart. it likes to invade in. And actually, one of the kinds of cells that it likes to invade the most is macrophages, our white blood cells. So Osmosis Jones getting invaded 
by a bacteria. Dude, that's fucking metal. Yes. Face off. Yeah, okay. Switch faces. But which one's Nick Cage and which one's John Travolta? Neither. They're both Will Smith. They're not Will Smith. They're Chris Rock. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That is intense. Okay, so tuberculosis still exists. It is very active in some other parts of the world outside the U.S. Like South Africa, right? Or not literally the country South Africa, but like Southern Africa, right? Uh, Yes, yes, and parts of Asia. Right. So They got all the shit still. When I went to Mumbai, there were signs I was like, this is a polio-free zone. And you're like, you guys have problems. (laughs) And there's still some work to be done. That's true. (laughs) So the thing about tuberculosis is that it can be latent or active, Okay. And latent means that you don't feel sick at all, but the bacteria is still inside of you. Right, kind of a typhoid Mary situation. Because you're spreading, the t- <laughs> well, because you're spreading the TB everywhere. So actually, people who have latent tuberculosis aren't really thought to be contagious. Oh, okay. But it does mean that you can get sick a long, long time ago, and then it only crops up as a disease much later. Ah, so like me. With AIDS. Oh, okay. There we go. (laughs) Just kidding. Jesus. (laughs) Um, So there are something like 2 billion people infected with tuberculosis. What? Yes. Okay. So how many billion people are alive right now? Like 52. No. No, just kidding. Like 7 billion. Yeah. So 2 billion of those are infected with tuberculosis. But also 1 billion are going to die from coronavirus. So that... (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. Just Um, kidding. Yeah, I don't even think that's possible. With Yeah, anyway, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you crazy bitch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> most of the people, most of those 2 billion people have latent tuberculosis, not active tuberculosis. Sure, but like, let's say they get pneumonia separately and they're older, that latent TB could come back. Sure. And like kill them. Sure, okay. yes. And if you have latent TB and are not treated, so there are some treatments that can help clear out TB if you have the latent form. But if you aren't treated, about 10% of those people will eventually get active TB. Okay. Okay. And when you are actively sick with TB, you get fever, weight loss, night sweats, cough, and you end up hacking up some blood and shit. Okay. Right? You start coughing up bits of your lung. And if untreated, tuberculosis can have a case fatality rate of about 50%. Mm, Two-face. Flip a coin. Right. But we do have treatments for tuberculosis. Very cool. So I hear Rohypnol... Robitussin, <laughs> Isosos, Prazazibidi, and uh, ethane. Yeah, you started trying uh, part of the way through. So these are all antibiotics. Rifampin, Isonazid, and blah, blah, blah. You don't know how to say this shit either. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't have to say any of these words. Uh, okay. um, but in any case, there are antibiotics that you can use to treat tuberculosis. And since the year 2000, so 20 years ago, over 60 million lives have been saved through the use of these treatments, okay? okay? And the mortality rate, because of active treatments, has dropped 42%. Did the, all these 60 million people just have great health care? How do they afford all these crazy medicines? So, so this, this is really specifically a large-scale mega push to try to provide low-cost antibiotics to people in countries that don't have super great health Dude, I had a Suadero burrito last night, and this morning I had, like, this crazy mega push. <laughs> <laughs> I like gave birth to that burrito. Is, is this what? <laughs> it came out like fully formed straight <laughs> through my body. This is what we have sunk to? Is shit humor now? That's, that's like, oh my God. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Totally a huge change. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you got like pithy, like political commentary or something like that. I'm just saying. It is true that I'm just really happy we have billionaires to help with these diseases. <laughs> and socialists need to calm down and let us keep our billionaires. Well, just kidding. In any case. 
Uh, that said, in 2018, 1.5 million people died from tuberculosis. Okay, wow. so even with these treatments... That's like 800 Wyomings. I I don't know the math on that. <laughs> it's a lot of Wyomings. <laughs> yeah, though. sure. And tuberculosis is the leading cause of death worldwide by a single infectious agent. Right. There's right. A lot Jason of... Bourne only killed like eight people per <laughs> <week>. <laughs> Well, uh, it's just that, yeah, but like um, John Wick kills a lot of people. But in any, it's Still a not 1.5. A single infectious agent. Now, it shows a really big comorbidity with HIV. So oh, um, okay. in some of these places, there's also a big HIV AIDS problem. Right? right. Well, that makes sense because AIDS makes you immunocompromised. Right. And then the TB can really flourish. Yes. Yes. And so that can cause a big problem there. An additional problem is the emergence of multi-drug resistance tuberculosis. Oh, this is where we're talking real, really the cool shit. <laughs> some TB is like, fuck your drugs. Yeah, some TB is like, fuck your drugs. And then some of them are extensively drug resistant tuberculosis or super fuck your drugs. Yeah. And some of them grow inside prions. So if you eat human brain, <laughs> if you eat human brain in Papua New Guinea, you start running around and you start coughing TB and everybody like, blah, 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 and then you spread the TB even further. I don't know why that happened in your brain. Do you have an explanation for why that happened? I have these prions in my brain. <laughs> that have TB inside them. All right. So about half a million cases of tuberculosis in 2018 were resistant to those antibiotics I mentioned earlier. Well, that's actually quite... That's like, if it's 1.5 million people who die and 400,000 of them are drug resistant, that's like a lot of math. Yes. <laughs> yes. But that's like a fair amount. That's like one third, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some of the people who die unfortunately die from tuberculosis that could have been treated appropriately. Okay. <laughs> so that, that, that does happen. Just kidding. But... A sizable amount, like you were saying, around 30% or so, die from tuberculosis that basically we don't have very effective treatments for because it has become resistant. Has that increased over time? Uh, Yes. Yeah, right. Because, of course, TB, some of them, whatever survives, develops those resistances and then spreads. Yeah, so the thing about TB is when you look at the ones that are resistant to different drugs, some of them are resistant because they gained resistance and then were spread right but then other ones just evolved resistance in the body Mm. from for example people not taking all of their antibiotics or not taking them correctly whenever you are given antibiotics take all of them yeah you really need to wipe that shit out you need to eradicate those bacteria because if they survive they might gain resistance and spread it don't just drink hand sanitizer Uh, yeah do not do that yeah Um, it doesn't it's not a good high probably not great for you so Treatments that I mentioned earlier, the antibiotic treatments for regular TB, they're about 85% successful. For multi-drug resistant TB, they're 56% successful. And, you know, I always hear this doomsday scenario about a point where we reach like some superbug TB that is resistant to all drugs. Yeah. uh, That outpaces our ability to develop new um, antibiotics for it. Yeah. I mean, how big of a problem is that really? Well, it already exists. Okay, cool. There are some cases of tuberculosis that do not respond to right. any treatment. And I don't have it, so clearly it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm the, not going to vote. The question is how much it can spread. Right. So in a lot of cases, the tuberculosis that gains drug resistance gains it in that patient. Okay. And if there's enough quarantining and stuff like that, there won't be a lot of spread. But, hey... You could imagine that tuberculosis clearly has been successful in spreading in the past, right? Two billion people have tuberculosis in their body. It is certainly a danger, and it's one that science finding new antibiotics is not going to be the only answer. We need to get better at not creating these resistant strains. But luckily, we have vaccines, 
and a hundred million babies a day get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why Jimmy Coconuts on that one, man? That wasn't Jimmy Coconuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was an orphan. <laughs> okay, I see. My I see. parents died from TB. <laughs> so. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's the most magical place on earth. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> God damn it, Chad! <laughs> so Mickey Mouse is an orphan, baby. Hire me. <laughs> Just- Mickey Mouse probably is an orphan. That got like adopted by like Walt Disney. <laughs> he had to shine his shoes for like twenty years till he finally got the chance to like do something else. <laughs> Walt Disney's like, shut up! I saved you from the streets, boy. <laughs> oh, sir, oh. <laughs> please, sir, may I have some bread? Oh. Holy shit! <laughs> um, okay, so so there is a vaccine for tuberculosis. Hundred million babies get it every year, but it's complicated. There are a lot of issues Great with the movie vaccine. with Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep. And we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but the main things that are going right on right now in tuberculosis research is faster diagnostic tests so we can tell if people are sick with it sooner, more treatments, and better vaccines. Okay, so let's take a quick break. But then we're going to take a little bit of a step back. We're going to talk about TB past and present. TB is humanity's first ex-girlfriend. Or boyfriend. Yeah. Or, or other. Jesus. <laughs> Gender neutral. It was 8.05 p.m. when John Doe approached his car. I did not know the man, but I had heard him having an argument with his wife, so I knew I would not be the prime suspect. I found a discarded lead pipe in the gutter and struck him three times across the head. Then my only problem was where to discard the body. This is Really True Crime, the first podcast brought to you by Real True Criminals. I had never seen her naked body, but I had oft imagined it in my more pensive moments. Good for strangling, I thought, as I strangled her. Every week, we recount our own true criminal activities to you to satisfy those dark urges within. Join us on Tuesdays, wherever podcasts are. Hi guys, so welcome back to Petri Dish. We're going to talk about the history of TB and how it really kind of constitutes like the world's greatest plague. (laughs) <laughs> there's been a lot of really great plagues out there we'll, we'll get to talk about some of no, them no but this is the plague that you keep calling back for booty calls oh yeah. yeah very nice so yeah i mean i will say over the past 200 years over 1 billion people have died from tuberculosis but it, it i mean it predates that right oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah scientists have a hard time knowing exactly when humans started getting tb but ancient egypt like nefertiti and like, and like Akhenaten maybe, and like definitely that other fucker, Tutankini, <laughs> right? So Tutankini and God. Nefertiti, like definitely, or probably had TB. A lot of mummies seem to have TB. I heard some scientists think that maybe sea lions spread it to the South American coast, right? Because Incans started getting TB, and that's fucking weird. Unless aliens spread it, I don't know. History That's, History yes. Channel now is about that, apparently. Sea lions and aliens are almost the same thing. So yeah, I right. agree with you. <laughs> yeah, the science ranges from like 6,000 years ago to maybe over 17,000 years ago right. that tuberculosis first emerged. Chinese Taoists used to write about it a lot. They'd be like, people have held in their sperm. And because of the sperm holding, 
They have tuberculosis. <laughs> you must release your vital energies and get less TB. I'm India. Glad. Yeah. You know, like all these fuckers. Greece has names for it. I mean, in the Romantic period, it was known as consumption before they had kind of developed the theory of tuberculosis and where the name comes from. And that's from the Latin name consumption, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a very ancient disease. Unlike coronavirus, which comes from very modern pangolins. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's interesting. The bacteria that causes tuberculosis, the main bacteria that causes tuberculosis is mycobacterium tuberculosis. Does that imply there's other bacteria that cause tuberculosis? Yes. Oh, fuck. We'll get to it into the next section. Mitochondria, the enemy within. But the main thing Just I want to say is that that genus of bacteria, the mycobacteriums, are kind of environmental pathogens. And like, they're in the dirt. And they're, you know, hanging out in the air and in leaves and trees and stuff, right? Like, right. they're all over the place. But at some point, they evolved, in the case of Mycobacterium tuberculosis, to be what are called obligate human-specific pathogens. Interesting. In that these ones really fucking love infecting human beings very specifically. Right. And the reason it kind of works is that because a lot of it's in a latent stage, they can fuck in your body yep. for a pretty good period of time. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons why in like the 1800s or so, late 1700s, early 1800s, it was called the romantic disease. One of the ideas behind that was that it gave you more time to like say goodbye to people and everything. Right. Along with a lot of other shit, like it made you waste away. It made you kind of pale. Yeah, actually, let's really quick, super step back. What do you look like when you have TB? Yeah, what so, are the symptoms? So tuberculosis. You coughing blood and stuff. but Right. You cough up blood. You have a fever. So usually you kind of have like a rosy cheek kind of situation. Right. But otherwise it makes you very pallid. So your skin's kind of whitened. Right. I don't know if you guys know this, but in like Victorian times, people used to masturbate over the word pallid. It's like <laughs> love that shit. Yeah. They had just done colonization and they're like, we're not swarthy. We're white. And then the, like anything that can make you whiter, including tuberculosis. Yeah, and tuberculosis, a new fad diet. It makes you very thin. Right. <laughs> you lose a lot of weight. It, yeah. It, Fuck fasting. I think that's part of the idea behind the name consumption kind of originally. With right, the... is it consumes you. Right, exactly. Right. All this is in reference to the fact that tuberculosis kind of exploded in the popular consciousness around the 17 and 1800s. It sounds like vampires. Yes. Hey. Yes, legitimately. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, that probably is connected. Well, I mean, that makes sense because the whole vampire idea kind of emerges in late romantic uh, iconography. Yes. And that, of course, is the same idea system that made consumption so popular. But anyway, so the, you know, in the 1700s, there were social conditions, industrialization that led to squalid living conditions that enabled the spread of tuberculosis. Yes. Right? Yes. And so it was everywhere. And people would get rosy cheeks and pallid, and romantics would be like, oh, you're so white. There was makeup crazes where, like, bougie ladies would put on makeup to look like they had tuberculosis. Right. Edgar Allan Poe's 12-year-old wife-slash-cousin got tuberculosis, and he would write poems about her and would fawn upon her, and then she fucking died, and then he died an alcoholic in, a, in Maryland. Yes. Worst, yes. worst place to die, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> you know you've hit rock bottom when you die in Baltimore. Yeah, so I think it is interesting how much tuberculosis kind of took off as... Uh, a fad? <laughs> yeah, as like a fad or some kind of... It was associated with purity to a certain extent, right? Like the, there was this idea... Hey, you can even see it in the fucking movie Moulin Rouge, right? Right. It's like she's a prostitute, basically. Yeah. But then the tuberculosis is sort of this like... Both sad it romanticizes and, yeah, her. Right. It gives her tragedy and gives her life more meaning than otherwise being a hooker would. 
Right, and you know, like John Keats, the poet, for example, dying from tuberculosis, there's this whole idea, like, oh, he was taken from us too soon, there's the romantic death of the young man and everything, Yeah, right? it's like, tuberculosis and opium is the 1800s version of, like, Elvis shitting himself on a toilet. Or, <laughs> not, not really, not really, really. Uh, not the right person. Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Or Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison, yeah. Okay. Like, all those guys died young from, like, drug stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, they went too young. Mm -hmm. And tuberculosis, and again, opium, was their version in the 1800s. Yeah, so actually, tuberculosis cases peaked in the year 1800. That was kind of, like, the highest point of tuberculosis. Yeah. Just ass-blasting everybody. Although, you gotta give them some credit. It's like how Korea and Japan, America moves in, gives them spam. You got a lot of spam. It's dog shit stuff. But you figure out what to cook within. Now you like spam. It's like tuberculosis. If you're gonna have tuberculosis anyway, <laughs> you might as well make it pretty. Yeah, and like have some uh, clothing styles and stuff yeah, that yeah. go well with it. Make some kimchi bokkeumbap with a little TB. Sure. So, so tuberculosis was like weirdly popular for a little while. One of the things that helped sort of kill its popularity was the realization in 1882 that it's caused by a germ, caused by a bacteria. What did they think caused it before that? I mean, it's honestly, because there was no germ theory really well established prior to that, right. it was not at all clear what caused it. So, for example, Keats called it the family disease because his brother died from it also. Wow. Is it... Right. A predatory thing? Is it right. a spiritual thing? Like, what the deal with it was? I like how you said germ theory wasn't established, as if people still believe in it now. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Mike Pence is running around being like, being like, ah, oh, because you're Jewish, you have coronavirus. Oh my god. <laughs> That's fucked. <laughs> I think um, we know those guys don't know much about germ theory. Okay. When did germ theory even happen? Okay. So, technically, germ theory had been happening for hundreds of years, in that there was a thought that was kind of passed from scientist to scientist, or even proto-scientists, natural philosophers, that there must be some kind of transmitted causative agent right. for diseases. But this is kind of like how Democritus and like some early Greek philosophers are like, maybe there's an atom. Right, yeah, yeah. But it was postulative. Right. So in 1882, Robert Koch, first Koch brother, <laughs> yes. he died last year. That's why they <laughs> funded less conservative causes. Yeah, so the original Koch brother isolated the causative agent of tuberculosis, and in that specifically with tuberculosis, helped solidify modern germ theory. The idea that there are these little tiny microscopic things that you can find that cause disease. So tuberculosis really is our first ex-partner because they, you know, killed us inside, but also caused us to grow and learn. <laughs> yeah, right? a little Thanks bit. Thanks to tuberculosis and the symbiotic relationship we have with tuberculosis, we solidify germ theory. So I, I will say that another big name in all of this kind of science, uh, Louis Pasteur. He's the guy who puts fluoride in milk, right? <laughs> he was the one who invented pasteurization <laughs> in the 1850s. Right. He is also somebody who is involved with the generation of this modern germ theory idea. He probably fucked a bunch of girls with TB. Like France, France was way about that. Chopin, for example. Chopin? I don't know. Chopin sounded good. Uh, kind of gay French guy. Chopin. He, uh, he, he, or Polish, actually. Oh. But he had tuberculosis, and he had like this wealthy lady like writer who would dote on him and be like, oh, you're so wide and dying. <laughs> <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> um, yes, so one thing I will say is that a large number like a sizable chunk of tuberculosis cases previously yeah. came from unpasteurized milk. Really? And so actually pasteurization helped reduce some tuberculosis cases by actually uh, kind of removing that from the equation. See, and, and it's so sad to see it now marred in conspiracy theories like Milky Gate yes. and stuff like that. Yes. And cue milk on. I mean, I don't know if you're joking or not. This is an actual conspiracy theory. That's bad. That unpasteurized milk is 
sort of way better and that pasteurized milk is an industrial process that like destroys stuff and makes it worse for you. Oh my stuff. God. Anyway. Griffin, stop saying stuff like that. <laughs> okay, I know you're listening. You better be listening. Although I will say unpasteurized milk does taste better. I'll give them that. I'll That's true. That. The the TB in there. <laughs> yeah, you got that extra jus. Extra flavor. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So much about modern human civilization and science is thanks to our relationship to tuberculosis. That's a weird way to put it because tuberculosis is bad, but but like it's an important part of our scientific revolution. Yeah. And, and it killed a whole lot of people for us to get to there. And it's still killing a lot of people. So let's take a step back and talk about what tuberculosis is as a pathogen. Yeah. So let's get into some of the biology part and then we're going to go into the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole TB conversation proves that the Victorians were just the most sick, back-ass-words, disgusting civilization in human history. <laughs> and almost all modern woes, from imperialism to, like, wanting to masturbate to feet and ankles, is, like, because of Victorian mores. <laughs> Thanks, Lord Byron. <laughs> <laughs> the queen! <laughs> anyway, so, guys, we're back with Petri Dish. Uh, I'm Sean. Wait, what? Uh! <laughs> How? <laughs> Guys, uh, this is Petri Dish. We're still Petri Dish. Oh, God. Get into the segment. Guys, we're back. Now, we've talked a lot about TB as it exists historically, TB as it kills people now. But what is it? Yeah. Sean, tell me a little bit. What are these tubers or these tuber clockers? Yeah. So you asked early on, is it a bacteria or a virus? That was a great question. It is a bacteria caused mainly by mycobacterium tuberculosis. Although, even in modern days, 2% of cases are caused by the closely related Mycobacterium bovis. Bovis stands for cow. Yes. Stop fucking cows. (laughs) And actually, there used to be way more cases that were caused by Mycobacterium bovis. That was what I was saying with the pasteurization, is actually the cow milk had Mycobacterium bovis, and that was fucking over a lot of people. Now it's just like eight super annoying hippies in Marine County. Rich hippies who drink unpasteurized and get TB. Yeah, or like when you go on one of those uh, cow tours of California and you go like suck on udders and stuff like that. Anyway. Gross. So there are a few other species of mycobacterium technically that can cause tuberculosis. Hey, I have a super quick divergent thought. Yeah. So, you know, some people are like, this is antibiotic-free meat or something, right? Like this cow or this chicken don't have antibiotics. What's the deal with that? Is that even good or bad? The situation is that a lot of times in the places where there were these practices with a lot of antibiotics getting used, it was because of housing conditions that had the animals really close to each other. Interesting. And so they would commonly... Share diseases. Yeah, and also sometimes like fight each other and get bloodied and infected and stuff like that. And so constantly feeding them antibiotics to make sure that their meat stayed good was kind of the way to get around that. If you just stop using antibiotics but keep housing them in that condition, <laughs> they're just all going to get sick and die. Right. So I think part of the idea mixed in with, oh, antibiotic-free meat and stuff like that is also that they had to be housed in some way that gave them enough space so that they weren't getting sick all the time. That's interesting. So um, it's kind of part of the nebulous ideology of organic foods and stuff like that. Yes, but Humane, I do think yeah. that the way, way, way overuse of antibiotics in livestock definitely contributes to antibiotic resistance right especially not even necessarily just the bacteria in those animals which i think do get killed by those antibiotics but they shit and piss out some of the antibiotics right and that gets into the environment at a low enough concentration that you can have just environmentally 
bacteria pickup resistance. That's cool. And or in bad. in bacteria where you see a lot of what's called horizontal transfer, which means the transfer of genes between separate species of bacteria, you can see resistance jumping from Right. That's bacteria. exacerbated in a really negative way by overuse of antibiotics in any circumstance. Yeah. But because of the scale of industrial farming, it's a lot of antibiotics being used and thus a lot of resistance is being uh, cultivated. Yeah, so I don't remember what the rules are in the U.S. Like, I don't know how common it is to have... Right. Like... I don't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. This episode's been hijacked, baby. Yeah, that's... No, the... but I actually really was always been really curious about this because I shop at Trader Joe's sometimes and I get so mad walking through Trader Joe's because I'm like, I don't care if it has GMOs or not. <laughs> Monsanto, I own stock in Monsanto. Yes, so... That's uh, not true. I, I like GMOs. I dislike Monsanto. I like GMOs. Right. But I also think that if we can move to conditions where animals sure. don't need you're antibiotics. A, you're an Elizabeth Warren style technocrat who now has no home in modern politics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a homeless person. Gay. Anyway, <laughs> By the way, so taking a few steps back. Yeah. Sorry. So other species of mycobacterium that can cause tuberculosis. Mycobacterium africanum, which causes up to 40% of TB cases in West African countries. That means that th this is a different... Species of bacteria that's infecting these people. Cool. And that might mean that the tuberculosis vaccine is not quite as effective. This is kind of a classic order. example of because of the inequalities that exist in the world, there's less health research that's done specifically in Africa for Africa. And so it's harder. These questions are more opaque once they hit a place that white people don't care about. Yeah. It's also weirdly localized to West Africa. Like, it's not even a sub-Saharan Africa sure. thing. Botswana's it's, it's, chill. It's, it's, it's like oddly Ghana. localized. Cote d'Ivoire. But in any case, across the board, what's going on here is that mycobacterium tuberculosis gets into your cells, like macrophages, in your lungs, and likes to hang out there. So when it infects those white blood cells in your lungs, other immune cells will often come up and basically dogpile on that cell and make these little kind of clusters of cells called granulomas. And so if you look at somebody's lungs, you'll see like these little tiny spots oh, where there was some tuberculosis that had infected some cells and then other cells coming and dying. So that out. sounds like a bad thing in your lungs because your lungs need to breathe. Yeah, so in a lot of cases with people with latent tuberculosis, they'll have these little dog piles and the tuberculosis is kind of contained in them. Right. But in a lot of cases, it seems to still be there. Like these dog piles, I think, are actually a natural immune response. Right. And in a lot of cases are a successful immune response in that they would clear out whatever's inside the dog pile and then leave. But in this case, you're not seeing this clearance. And the tuberculosis is successfully surviving inside and could someday break out again. Okay. And it loves lungs in general. Yes. There's no, uh, there's no TB in your cock. Well, actually. Whoa. <laughs> uh, tuberculosis is commonly pulmonary, but there are other kinds of extrapulmonary tuberculosis and are, in fact, more common in immunocompromised people and kids. So kids usually, or kids often, get extrapulmonary tuberculosis, so it's not just in their lungs. It can be in other spots in their body. And I think that maybe that difference in, like, the kind of tuberculosis that kids get versus adults might help explain why the vaccine that people use is actually more effective in kids than adults. So that vaccine is called the Bacillus Calmet-Guerin vaccine. Bacillus is talking about the shape of the bacteria. But then Calmet-Guerin is the name of these two jamokes. It's two researchers at the Pasteur Institute in 1908. They wanted to fight TB. It was Albert Calmet and Camille Guerin. Okay, two smart frogs. Yeah, dude. And these guys, they got a strain of Mycobacterium bovis, so the cow one. And they took that, 
And it was a particularly virulent strain in that it could still give people tuberculosis. And they wanted to culture it to be able to make more of it. Cool. Right? So they could fight World War One better. <laughs> give it to the Germans. Rub it on some krauts. <laughs> uh, so, this is uh, where sauerkraut comes from. It's made with TB. <laughs> so, so they wanted to be able to grow more of it to be able to study it more and perhaps try to make a vaccine from it. And what they found was that when... A lot of times when you grow bacteria, you kind of just dump it into this liquid broth. It's, it's almost like a chicken broth or something. Okay, but that wouldn't do it this time. No, because what happened was the bacteria was getting all clumpy and shitty in liquid culture. It wasn't growing the way that they wanted we it We want to. a good smooth milkshake. Yes. So they were like, let's add other stuff to this broth. And then through a series of thoughts that I don't know how they came across this idea. A lot of absinthe. They added in glycerin, potatoes, and cow bile. Okay. I, I do not know why. That's just what you have in French cuisine. It's just, that's a they really... had those things laying around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing they didn't put snails in there, too. <laughs> so they made this new fun media for the bacteria, and they were successful. They managed to culture it through many generations. It's thought that the cow bile might have actually helped make the bacteria less virulent through all of these strains. So what they found was that this strain was less able to kind of kill... Right. Or be a super infectious. So this is kind of the classic idea of a live culture, like vaccine. Right. Live attenuated yeah, vaccine. Yeah. So it, it still like gives you a little bit of it, a little bit of this virus or a bacteria in this case, but you survive it. Definitely. Yeah. So in this case, the bacteria was attenuated to the point where like you don't really get sick, but your immune system is able to recognize it as similar enough to full blown tuberculosis to give you immunity. And so cool. they tried this out in cows in 1915. And then our closest relative, guinea pigs. <laughs> in 1921. Yeah. Guinea pigs are actually used relatively frequently in immunology research, along yeah. with weasels. And then they tried it in Spaniards. <laughs> and they're like, maybe it can work on people. Actually, it was orphans in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, come here, little orphan. And they just like rubbed some of this bacteria on their face. And it um, saved those little orphans. Yeah. It worked. From 1921 yeah, to Yeah, not from hungry days, though. Am I right? Like, <laughs> not from French hot cuisine. It was the 20s in Paris, yeah. so I don't, I don't know what that meant to orphans, but... Ernest Hemingway's cock. <laughs> so, over the years, this bacteria was distributed all over the world so that the world could make more of this vaccine to be able to use it in people. Part of the thing is that this is distributed prior to widespread refrigeration technology. Ah. So, actually... In that spread, there are now five to seven different versions of this bacteria oh, that's all over the world, and they are not all as effective as each other. Mm. They are actually functionally different. Right. And so based off of who the manufacturer is, they have a different strain that's been going for the past several decades, and that can mean different responses in people. Okay. So as you mentioned, BCG, it's a live attenuated vaccine. Cool. And that means it is a living bacteria it can't really make you full-blown sick unless you're immunocompromised, in which case you cannot get the BCG vaccine. Right. And like you said, there are several different variants now. Yes. So why don't we take a break, and yeah. then we're going to talk about what's the deal with the effectiveness if there's so many different types of it. Sounds good. The following is an actual advertisement. Hey there, new friends. This is Ellen Weatherford. Do you like animals? Do you enjoy arbitrarily rating things out of 10? Can you tolerate puns? If so, join me and my husband Christian over at Just the Zoo of Us for a weekly review of your favorite animal species. Just the Zoo of Us is available on Spotify, iTunes, and other podcast apps. You can find us at anchor.fm slash just the zoo of us. See you soon. Did you know that a team in University of Toronto proved that corona does spread coronavirus? 
The beer. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to have big beer come after us, dude. You so, gotta be careful. So, guys, we're back. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people will support us, right? And has a bush or whatever. Do they own Corona? I don't know. I don't know who owns what. Well, I'm sure Budweiser is going to be like, give us money, dark money. <laughs> All right. We're back. And we're talking about the effectiveness of this vaccine. Should you give it to your children knowing that they're getting TB? <laughs> well, you can't give it to your kids here in the U.S. They don't do that. But in any they, case... They, wait, what? They just don't have it in America? Pretty much. Oh, because we've eradicated it. I'll describe what we have it in the U.S. Okay. for, but okay. we, we don't really we don't regularly give it to kids. Okay, Sean, um, tell me about the effect of this. So we discussed this a little bit in the vaccine episode. I actually brought up this BCG vaccine. It's a fairly effective vaccine when used in children. Thank you, friends. Um, historically, it has been very important for the stark decrease in TB infection. So I'm, mm. yeah, I'm saying this because I'm, stark? I'm about to shit all over this vaccine. So I want to start up front by saying this vaccine has done important and useful things. Remarkably important yes. to human society. But I'm about to go into a very long segment about how it is not a perfect vaccine. Sure, it's like many things French, in which you have to have the caveat of like, France is one of the great civilizations of human history and has produced so much amazing art and, and culture and science. Also, fuck those guys. And now let's talk for an hour about how much we hate them. Freedom fries. So... One of the things is that, like we just said, there are these different strains of BCG vaccine out there now, right. and they have different levels of efficacy. And what that means is for some of these, they have side reactions that are worse than other ones without giving you more Thank protection. Thank you for telling me what efficacy means, Mr. Science. Just because I don't have a college degree and I didn't finish high school doesn't mean you can tell me what efficacious means. God, you have a postgraduate degree. Yeah, but it's an MFA. You are a master. It's an MFA. Yeah. You are a master of fine ass. I'm like embarrassed that I have an MFA. <laughs> it's not a degree I'm proud of. So... One of the things is that, as we mentioned in the vaccine episode, BCG has an astonishing variability in its efficacy, working well in some populations and basically not at all in some other people. Having an MFA feels like a bot stock in Blockbuster, like in 2007. Are you still <laughs> <laughs> ashamed of me? So caught up yes! in you having an MFA? Yes! God, you son of a bitch. Okay. So the age in which you get the BCG vaccine matters a lot. You got to... <laughs> I just touched his yeah, cock. Yeah, you got to not tap my dick while we're recording. <laughs> All right, anyway. It shows the highest efficacy in newborns and then variable efficacy in elementary school kids. And then it's just dog shit in older people. What's up with that? So it might... Eat. So we don't know. Well, we do not. Okay. But one thing I will say is that comparing neonatal immune systems, so that's the immune system of newborns, your immune system changes as you grow older, okay? So that might be one thing is that the vaccine just works better in younger people. But another option is that younger kids have a tendency to get extra pulmonary tuberculosis. Maybe BCG works better for extra pulmonary as opposed to pulmonary tuberculosis that okay. adults get. Okay. But it is not clear. Okay. So BCG, one problem with it. Works for kids, doesn't work at all afterwards. Pretty much. Okay. It has very low efficacy in adults. It also seems to have geographic variability, which we yelled about last time. So wait, so that means like, just as a hypothetical in Paraguay, doesn't work. In Venezuela, barely works. In America, works great. Yeah, except we don't really use it in America. Right. But yeah, like in but the UK. The basic works, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, what, what, I mean, I guess we talked about how that doesn't make any fucking sense in our vaccine episode, but that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, and one of the things is that when you control for some stuff like ethnicity... Right. You could put, like, an Italian guy in Brazil, and it wouldn't matter that he's ethnically different from an Amazonian. It would still be less effective. Right. 
Right. It's fucking weird. Yes, it is weird. It's not fully explained by substrains. It's not fully explained by socioeconomic stuff. Right. And it's not fully explained by ethnicity. Whereas if you take an Italian in Italy or you put that Italian into America, he's still spreading coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because of that outbreak in Italy, <laughs> there have been some cases of in China... <laughs> people what? showing up that got it in Italy. That's hilarious. So China right now is like, don't re-give us coronavirus. <laughs> you know? So so that is actually a current problem. But anyway, uh, this is not a coronavirus episode. There is a potential theory for why there's this geographic thing, which has to do with the different kinds of mycobacterium species that are just kind of out in the environment, right? Ones that don't cause tuberculosis, right. but might change how your immune system views tuberculosis and this vaccine. Crazy. But that's still really up in the air. There's like... A hundred different mycobacterium species. It's a really difficult study to do, but maybe something like that. In any case, some studies suggest the vaccine works all right, like a 49% vaccine efficacy rate, which by the way, I should mention what that means. Vaccine efficacy rate means that it decreases the number of new people getting a disease by that percentage. Okay, cool. So 49% fewer people getting sick okay. from this vaccine. That sounds pretty good. But that study was done in Norway and England. Where okay. it tends to work anyway. Right. So We haven't there, done a good study in India or something. Yeah, there have been some studies. And while some people find flaws in those studies, a lot of those studies say it works like 5% or something. Like wow. really shitty, right? So, so basically, it's really unclear how good this thing is out there. Okay, but maybe this vaccine is also good for treating bladder cancer. Yes. Yeah, so, hey, this is really exciting. The whole reason why I wrote up this episode is because in the vaccine episodes, you asked about, can we get vaccines up the penis? Yes. And that led a medical doctor to contact me and say, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> Very cool. And so this is an up the penis utilization of the BCG vaccine to treat bladder cancer. I think I'm just, I'd rather die. I think it's like, <laughs> they're like, you can live another 40 years. But you gotta get shot up the dick. I'm like, you, you uh, just, just let me go. I mean, so this like, this honestly blows my mind, and it is the craziest example of one of your nutballs non sequiturs actually panning out. So, BCG actually gets used as an effective treatment for bladder cancer, and it has been for nearly 40 years. And you let the BCG get up there. You kind of, you know, you pop a tube up there. Wow. Pop some BCG in. You shake it around a little bit. You get wow. the shake going. I like it. And then you let it out, and then you rinse and repeat. Gross. How yep. many times do you have to rinse and repeat a needle up your cock? It's usually a tube up your cock. Um, uh, that's not so bad. <laughs> it's like but, a gauge. <laughs> um, how many times? Uh, I think it's like a weekly treatment. You know, in some Mayan societies, they do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually kind of true. There were in some classical Mayan societies, they'd prick the cock and let the blood out as part of a ritual. And those guys had a very low incidence of bladder cancer. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Similar penis stuff. Okay. So this idea originated with an observation in 1929 by this guy named Dr. Pearl that people with tuberculosis... <laughs> Dr. Pearl sounds like a pervert. <laughs> that guy sounds like a guy who like goes on Dr. Oz. I mean, he was a pervert, but he was a smart pervert. <laughs> uh, doctors um, tend to be. <laughs> people with tuberculosis have cancer less than people without tuberculosis. Okay. And he suggested that there was some kind of mechanism of mutual antagonism between tuberculosis right. and cancer. And back then they were like, madman! And they like ice pick lobotomied <laughs> him. Well, it wasn't until the 1950s where animal studies using the BCG vaccine found that it could help fight cancer in animals. And then in the 1970s, a Colombian-born Canadian Latino jabroni named Dr. Alvaro Morales 
figured out that certain kinds of bladder cancer could be accessible enough to BCG. The only way you can make that more intersectional is if he became Dr. Alvara Morales, <laughs> like somewhere in the 80s. That is like most of the stuff, right? Colombian born, but also Canadian. Jabroni even. Yeah, I, I put it all in there. So he did this trial in people, and he actually found that it could help effectively treat bladder cancer. That is nuts. That is a crazy situation, and it's probably one of the earliest instances of cancer immunotherapy, huh. in that it's actually going in there and getting the immune system activated and excited. Dude, great graphic novel idea. A bunch of Parisian orphans who get the first round of vaccines and become immortal. <laughs> it's called Super Orphan Paris. That sounds good. I like that. I, I, I like just the imagery of orphans suffering in the streets of 1920s Paris. Yeah, That's yeah, just amusing to me. Yeah, I, orphan suffering is universal for you. That's just, just it's like this union motif in your mind. So as we mentioned in the cancer episodes, there's this thing, cancer immunotherapy, and that's the idea of waking up your immune systems to fight cancer. And that seems to be what's happening with this BCG bacteria. The BCG huh. bacteria is getting inside the cancer, crawling up in there, infecting cells, and local immune cells are getting aggravated by that process. Right. That cancer must be so mad. It's like, yeah. Ooh, bro, yeah. <laughs> bro, get the yeah. fuck out of here. <laughs> Goddamn, bro. Yeah, and BCG's just making this big uh, hullabaloo. And that's calling in all the immune cells, and the immune cells are fucking up the cancer. So why does it only work on bladder? Right. So one of the reasons is that there's different kinds of bladder cancer, okay? What? And the kind of bladder cancer that this works on is one that hasn't invaded into your muscle sort of lining of your bladder yet. Yeah. And what that means is that it's kind of very on the surface and accessible in your bladder. Damn. So because of that... The BCG bacteria that you're kind of just shoving up in there. Gets right in there. Yeah, it gets right in there. It gets to rub up against that cancer. And so it's pretty effective against that cancer. Right, right. And I think, hypothetically, it could be effective against a lot of cancers that have that same level of accessibility, which unfortunately is very few cancers. Right. But in the case of bladder cancer, specifically this kind, it's very effective. The kind of cancer I have is super invasive. It's <laughs> mental cancer. <laughs> <laughs> from Reddit and 4chan. Yeah, and I've rubbed BCG all <laughs> over my brain. <laughs> to no avail, buddy. So this crazy treatment helps 55 to 75% of patients with this kind of cancer. Damn. Which is very good. But then there's 25 to 45% of patients who are just like, whoopsie daisy, you just had to tube up your dick for no reason. Yeah, but part of the thing is and that... Besides liking it. Well, so even though this treatment is 40 years old, there's still a lot that we have to learn about why it works specifically. Right. And if we learn more, right, we can tweak it. But more research needs to be done. But maybe this BCG vaccine that I was shitting all over for tuberculosis purposes, maybe it can get used for bladder cancer. That's amazing. Yeah. So amongst all the pandemics that we're eventually going to survey, yeah. TB really constitutes like the best and most formative ex-girlfriend. The one who really has defined germ theory, uh, modern innovations in chemo, immunocochotherapy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. immunochemotherapy, is that, what was the expression you used? Oh, cancer immunotherapy. Yeah, like tuberculosis is that one person you have a bittersweet feelings towards. I mean, I think tuberculosis is a really amazing disease because... Uh, like this ex-girlfriend metaphor that you brought up. Repeatedly. Um, yeah. It cropped up a long, long time ago, but it also it gets inside you. Yeah. It stays there. Yeah. Right? Unlike a lot of other pandemics that we will talk about, which in a lot of cases have caused a lot of human death and misery, 
right? Tuberculosis can stay latent inside people for very, very long periods. Dude, of can time. you imagine like 500 days of tuberculosis? It's just like Jessica <laughs> Eleven. And he could look like he has TB. You know? Oh, yeah. He'd get a little rosy. Yeah, I believe in him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I think that this is a good starting place. But there's a lot of other diseases out there that I think historically have played a really big role in our understanding of science and everything. Smallpox, polio, and we're going to get a chance to talk about all those guys, too. Mm. Well, guys, thank you for joining in. As always, we need to thank Stacy Song, our sound lord, Brian Allen, our art man. Yeah, if you like what we do, you can toss us a little bit of money as low as $1 a month at patreon.com right. slash petri dish. Call out to Patreon supporters besides the ones that are embarrassing. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Lance Jung, for some money. And then thank you, sexy Scottish man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you can tweet at us at Dish Podcast. And you can send us an email at petridishpod at gmail.com. Sean does not think coronavirus is just a mild flu, so don't tweet that. <laughs> He's not Marion Williamson. Yeah, people need to stop yelling at me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so we will see you guys next time. Yeah. Ich benign pandemic. Ich benign pandemic.